This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. At Kavnis HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people through our automated HR platform and by providing you a dedicated HR business partner. Our guest today is Jay Strickland. Jay, you ready to be great today? Yes. Jay Strickland leads Heliopath Labs LLC, a design and development agency that helps clients move from concept to MVP on deep tech projects. A Marine Corps veteran, happy birthday to Marine Corps today, and we'll talk about that later. He went on to earn a Megatronics Engineering Bachelor degree. That shit is so smart, I can't even say it. And so Jay will talk later how, how he's one of the few people in the world that's actually like a Marine, like a meathead, so to speak, and also involved with deep tech. Uh, this will be an interesting conversation. So Jay, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So Jay, uh, today is a Marine Corps birthday. Can you talk about your experience with Marines, like, like why you decided to join? And everyone else asked about the Marines, why they joined. Everyone says because of the uniforms. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hear that a lot. Uh, I don't know. To me, to me, it seemed like a pretty good idea at the time, right? Uh, you know, um, I figured it was something I, I I knew I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go in the service. And um, after I took my ASVAB and everything, like the you know Johnny Recruiter came knocking on my door, like you know pretty immediately. And um, the Marine Corps just took so, the initiative and took so much you know effort to come and find me and pick me up and like let's go do this. And uh, to me, that really like represented the culture that I wanted to be a part of. And um, I knew it was something where I'd join and I'd, I'd either love it and want to stay in for 20 or I'd hate it and want to get out. But I knew that either way, I'd be better for the experience. And that's kind of the mindset I took into it. And how long did you do again? Five years. Five years. Yeah. And where were you stationed at? So uh, I did basic in um, combat school on the East Coast and then a year in California for tech school, two years in uh, Japan and two years in North Carolina. A pretty good experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, with everything else, there's a lot of ups and downs, mm -hmm. um, and especially in the Marine Corps, you know, they have a special way of making things miserable sometimes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think a lot of the relationships that I gained, mm -hmm. um, you know, really will impact me for life. There's some people that I really trust and respect. Um, that's where I met them. Can you talk some of how, how your experience in the Marine Corps has helped you as being an entrepreneur? entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental, right? Um, and that was a, a big reason why I went in the Marine Corps. Uh, that pushed me through college and that d definitely every day pushes me, you know, just having that uh, beaten into you. Okay. Hey, this is what we're doing today and just make it happen. Uh, that, that really has helped me out a lot. So is anybody in your family also in the military or were you the first one? Yeah. In, in the past, uh, I think three generations, we have over 400 years of service. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I think I'm the th third Marine. Um, pretty much everybody else is Air Force or Army. Nice. And so what made you decide to get out of the Marine Corps? Just change the life? You knew you wasn't going to do 20 years or what? Well, it, was, it was mainly that I just loved what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was working on um, electronics every day. And I, I just, I love that work. And uh, getting into the lab, you know, working on uh, what we were doing. It, um, it felt like a lot of times I was fighting the environment, especially as a junior enlisted Marine. And then even as an NCO, fighting the environment to be able to do the work, to be able to get involved. 
um, versus like someone who could just show up and grind out for 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I knew that long term, I wanted to be somewhere where I was building something and not just maintaining or, or keeping you know, the status quo. Yeah, I know the army had the same from the army too. Like there were times the army were like, what am I doing here? Like, you know, of course I retired all, but it's like, yeah. one thing bad about the military, it's good and bad. One thing bad, I think is like, there's this like, there's what's called, you know, good enough for government work, you know? Yeah. Like I, I know so many people like a grinded, like try to do better things, you know? Uh, plus I know just so many people like, you know, like, you know they do PT 630, 630, they work from nine to eleven thirty. You know, go to lunch. You know, just the bare minimum, right? Because it's like it punch in, punch out. Yeah, I know the joke army was. You know, your reward for doing a great job is like getting even a harder, greater job and doing the work for everyone else, right? Right. And you're like, okay, we're off in the same pay, same performance. It's like, what's going on here, right? So, yeah, and that, that was a really frustrating thing, especially in my career field. Um, you know, you had to be exceptionally, you know, kind of above the cut to make it through our school, and then you know. Uh, be, be very technically minded, but because we were such a small community, the promotion rates were so low mm-hmm. and that had just a, a huge impact on the morale with the guys. And especially once I got into a leadership position, you really start to see that. Um, my first, my second unit, when I showed up as an NCO, they just had a huge discipline issues where like people doing drugs, people, you know, having DUIs, having all these other issues. And a lot of it stems from, they're just an unrecognized yeah. for their talent, you know? And um, you know, if you put a smart person in a room, and you give them nothing and you tell them they're nothing, it's going to get bad quick. Yes. So, um, but you know, the flip side of that is there's those 10, 15% of guys who, you know, have a high gas factor and they really know what they're doing and they make it worth it being there, you know? Yeah. And, and those are the people that you love that they stayed in. They love what they're doing. And, um, you know, there's guys like that. I know it will be lifers and I'm glad they're there for it. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. That's, that's a good thing. Um, so, as a Marine, you were, straight, you were straight to college or you did college before the Marines? Um, I did. I, so basically when I was in Japan, I sat back and I was like, okay, what do I want to do with my life? Right? Like what, what is going to motivate me to move forward? Um, and I knew it was interested in tech, but like for a lot of tech stuff, you don't need a degree. Um, but I knew that I wanted to build something and a lot, especially if I was ever going to be in a room with investors or VC, I would need to have a degree to be credible. Um, and then the other side of that is I wanted to do engineering um, because I felt like, you know, the two big problems that really interested me were uh, space colonization and um, renewable and sustainability. And for either of those, like to have a big impact and to leave something behind, you would need to build something. And engineering is is where you go to do that. So I started taking online classes in Japan. Um, So a lot of times when, especially at my second UG station, I was working 60, 70 hours a week, volunteering 10 or 15 hours, and then taking two classes online on top of that. And um, that, that set me up for success. Uh, when I got out, I moved immediately into like a project engineering internship or controls technician. I did the DOD skills bridge program and then did that pretty much uh, through college up to my senior year when I started working for the Department of Robotics. So, so what is a mechatronics engineering bachelor's degree? Sure. So mechatronics is the synthesis between uh, electrical engineering, computer engineering and mechanical engineering. All right, no, we really focus in on robotics and automation. Uh, basically, the way we look at the world is everything is something that can sense something, can think about it, and then act. And um, that's true for a lot of systems. So we have a high overlap with uh, like bioinformatics, um, soft robotics, uh, any kind of manufacturing automation. It's basically take a look at a system. What's the inputs? How does the system work on it? And then what's the outputs? So what's your take on robots? You know, some people, oh, the robots going to take over. We'll all be unemployed. We'll be slaves of our robots, you know. 
other people know robots are a good thing because my point of view is like there's always been new technology right even if you go back to the days of horses right right you know horses the, the car came oh all the people you know shoving the shit behind the horse about jobs true yes but you got new jobs coming on i just think it's a cycle of process this is the next cycle of that um to, to some extent um i think there's basically three paths forward right there's an optimistic there's a base and there's a pessimistic case uh the optimistic case is that um we figure out something like a UBI or um, some kind of, you know, strong social safety net for people. Um, and then as we roll through these changes, it's, it's kind of okay. And everybody's getting this huge surplus from the, the level of automation that's coming. Um, the mid case is like our existing social net safety net is stressed and supported, but we, we make it, you know, we just kind of make it happen. There's some pain in the system. Um, but the pessimistic case is that, you know, our existing social safety net isn't reworked or isn't reimagined. And um, it goes off a cliff because I got to tell you, the rate of adoption for what we're doing is only accelerating and getting faster and faster. And, um, you know, our traditional idea of creative destruction in the market where like, you know, you have an industry disappear or you have a ton of jobs that are replaced. And then what do you do is you um, you retrain those workers and then they're able to reintegrate. Um, a lot of the technology that we're developing now, the rate of reintegration for a human being to retrain over six months or nine months to get new skills it's not going to be fast enough. Um, and so that's going to create a lot of social tension. Yeah, I have a good friend. He, he owns a, a moving company out of South Carolina. And like, he's like, they're right now trying to figure out the, like the drivers of trucks. How does that work? You know, yeah, like all that kind of stuff. And, and it seems far away. Be like, like for business planners for purposes, then it's not far away. Cause we got to know, like it, it's what close. do we do? Yeah. I, I can tell you that with a lot of this stuff, um, the way, then the way I look at like technology commercialization generally, right. Is, the order of problems is number one, politics and, and buy-in from, from people. Number two, money. And then number three, what's the state of technology? Mm. Because if you had strong buy-in like we had with like, you know, the atomic bomb and the Heisenberg project and everybody is on the same page, we'd have driverless cars within a couple of years. Mm -hmm. It'd be no problem. You know, there's over 30,000 a year, over 30,000 people a year die on the roads. And that's only because we're, we're stubborn. Yeah. And if we just, if we changed our system just a little bit faster, the technology that we'd use has been around for 40 or 50 years. Um, so, correct me wrong, but you're a proponent for UBI, right? Yeah, I, I definitely so, am a proponent so for UBI. So, you talk about what the UBI, UBI, UBI is and why you're a proponent for it. Sure. Universal basic income is something that's, that's still kind of being flushed out. Um, and basically, the way it works is uh, you have just a flat um, cash disbursement to every person, right? Is how it's supposed to be. Now, some programs modify it, some some don't. And basically, in, instead of receiving a lot of your government benefits or welfare, everybody just gets a check for that amount. And then you decide, what do you need, right? And you figure it out. And it's great, I think, because of whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur, or like you just had a rough patch or whatever the deal is, you can go out and do what you need to do to make your life better. Right. And if you're already doing well, then you're probably just going to take that money and spend it on something that's going to help stimulate the economy. So um, some people have a lot of criticisms over it. They say people are just going to hit skid row. They're going to go do drugs or whatever. But most of the research that's been done on this doesn't bear that out. You know, they, they show that people, when you give them a check and um, you saw during COVID times with all the, um, you know, the uh, stimulus checks that came out, mm -hmm. right, people took it and then they did something to make themselves a lot of people started businesses during during the mm -hmm. pandemic and now we have this whole you know entrepreneurial renaissance that's coming out of 
basically, hey, the government cut everybody a check. Yeah, that's another. That's a good point too. A lot of people don't realize, you know, when the economy is bad, that's when entrepreneurship flows, right? Because like, yeah, you back go back to the, the, the last great recession, two thousand eight. You know, all the Airbnb, you know, Uber came out there. You know, I think Instagram. You know, so you see like ten years now, what great companies came out of this coming out of this? You know, because a lot of people like, you know, I'm not going back to work. You know, yeah. Like I read an article somewhere about the the great uh, chicken fight now between remote and non remote. You know, it was remote for like a year, year and a half. And despite the fact that they proved they could work better, better production, you know, et cetera, et cetera, these companies say it's time to come back to work. And the workers are like, no, screw you. We're not doing that, you know? Yeah. I mean, once you know what your alternative is, it's kind of hard to negotiate sometimes, right? And um, especially uh, for, um, yeah, not coming back to work. And then to your point of the, you know, entrepreneurs are coming out of like 08 and then out of this time period. Uh, I mean, a good entrepreneur solves a pain point, right? And when there's a ton, when there's a time when there's a ton of pain around, mm-hmm. that is when the most opportunity it is to, to start something or get into something because it's evident, you know, if you go in and you help people and you solve a pain point, you're going to be successful no matter what, like somebody's going to pay you to do that. So for UBI, UBI, what do you think needs to be done to convince more people to jump on the bandwagon, so to speak, to, to get those naysayers like, no, this is actually a good thing. Uh, I wish I could say it'd just be evidence and data, right? But as we know, that's not how our, our political system... Go do your research. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not how our political system works, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, that's that's one of those things where it's going to be painfully slow. Unfortunately, our political system is very much driven um, by legal frameworks and, and, and kind of the law industry. Mm-hmm. And that is still very much... a you know, what we call a filing cabinet industry, right? Like it's, it's still done on paper and, and everything. And that, that lethargy is going to stall out with being able to help people in a responsive fashion. And so, um, because, you know, there's that, that, that inertia, um, like I said, that's why we have three cases. It's not a, Hey, this is what's going to happen. It's like, Hey, if they're responsive, it, things go well. If they don't, then it's it's going to go bad for a lot of people. Yeah, I think one thing needs to happen. Like, I think a lot of like, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Yeah, he's a big problem, right? Yeah, I, he, I, I think you have to have someone who's a problem like maybe not tech, right? Maybe like mainstream, you know, economy, and maybe like works for an you know, oil company or manufacturing company, right? Because yeah. a lot of people like look at tech, like what are they doing, right? They're the liberals, they're craziness. This one's no. work, you know. Like I remember a while ago, of course, talking about Mark Zuckerberg. He he did a piece on Instagram like last month talking about. He made it sound like he's just a normal day out, 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 in, the, out in Hawaii, right? He's on this like uh, floating jet ski, right? He's like a blast, like no one has a floating jet ski. <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me right now? Like, how, how, how this is a normal day, right? And I, I think it's gonna take someone who's like quote unquote from the mainstream economy, right? To say, you know, this is a good idea, you know, versus a tech person. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think, um, especially in the, in the tech, we have like our eyes constantly on the future. And so for, for us, there's, that's the reason why a lot of us are, are libertarians, right? Uh, you know, big L libertarians, little L libertarians, whatever. It's because we recognize that with the amount of technology that's coming, um, your, you know, personal freedoms and rights go right out the window if it's not monitored and close and closely like, you know, all of us agreeing on what's normal and what's okay. And especially, um, you know, with how industry 4.0, which is like this digital transformation that I'm talking about coming from a military background, when you start seeing, okay, how does industry 4.0 get applied inside of a a DOD space? It starts getting really interesting, right? And you don't want to be in a world where 
you know, all of us aren't kind of on the same understanding of, hey, you know, you should be able to live your life. So that's that's why a lot of the tech community supports this UBI construct, because we recognize that, like, your job is, is not going to be guaranteed going forward. So what's your point of view on, like, we'll say big tech, you know, you know, all the controversy, tech has too much power, you're like, like, a, like YouTube can, like, you know, just, you know, take you off if they don't agree with your, with your, what you're talking about. A lot of people in Congress want to like break the tech companies up, you know, what's your point of view on those things? Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's like a two or three part thing, right? Like part of it is, it is like the, you know, the Gilded Age. If you look at, uh, the, the latter half, I like that comparison. That's a great comparison. Yeah. And you think about Rockefeller and Carnegie and all these guys, and they're kind of laying the foundation of what is this new future going to look like? Um, you know, they, they built these huge systems, but then they have enough power now to where now they're architecting the system. Right. If you look at like the Federal Reserve Act and all that, that wasn't written by Congress. That was written by these guys who were, who had most the, people don't know that. Yeah, they had most the, people think the Federal Reserve was actually like long. Yeah, no, it was written by these guys who were who were controlling the system, and um, you know, for better or for worse, they they built they built the country. You know that we know, and um, I think we're we're in a similar period where the the technology has moved out. You know, and that was Industry 2.0. And the technology has moved out ahead of what the regulatory environment and the power existing power structure can keep up with. And um, so, the, you know, there's there's that angle to it. The other angle is the one, you know, a lot of the reasons why they have this power is because of um, outsized valuations in the stock market. When you look at companies that are trading 30, 40 X over revenues, you know, their financial ratios don't support those valuations. And you look at, you know, just the sugar high that we're in <laughs> inside of the the net, you know, and inside of the stock market, um, you know, even conservative uh, players on Wall Street right now are saying, hey, there's going to be a retraction in the next year, you know, of, of a, at least 10%, just because, you know, what we're doing right now just isn't sustainable. So that you kind of, that's kind of where I see that at. It's like, you have these companies that have super high valuations, Versus firms that are value oriented or actually have stuff on the books that support it, having you know future revenue streams, and so that outsized valuation then in turn gives them the you know political and and fiscal capital to turn around and put pressure on. Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we want to do, and they can kind of just do what they want. I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I remember reading somewhere like one of the guys back in the like Rockefeller, one of the other guys. Like if you trace his family down a day, everyone in his family is like at least a millionaire, right? Right. So that's, that's craziness, right? Like, I think maybe a stand oil, like, like 10 of this or coming to come out there are still an operational now, you know? Yeah. Well, and, but, you know, to, to fair enough, you know, I think that there is some problems there because especially back then we didn't understand the environmental impacts, what, what he was working on. Um, but he got to that position cause he helped a ton of people, right? Mm -hmm. He got, you know, and, and, uh, that, the entire generation, they saw, problems and they they did something about it they went out and they just built stuff and sometimes with reckless abandon and sometimes they <laughs> broke things right but they 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 pushed the country for it and um i think you know as, as an entrepreneur i try and stay ethical and stay disciplined because mm -hmm. you know especially coming out of the military that that's our ethos um but there's a reason why there's uh, a ton of people in the military that are in the fortune 500 list that are either veterans or, yeah. or right it's because they uh, they all understand that hard work and go out and do something is better than sitting, sitting on your butt and just letting everything fall to crap. Exactly. So, so what is a robot? What's the, what's the simplest definition of a robot? What is a robot? It's, it's a controversial uh, definition. I have, I have a slightly skewed definition. Uh, 
to me, a, a robot is anything that can do that full cycle that I told you about, you know, since think act. Um, so to me, I define, uh, you know, the human brain as an organic computer. And then I would define a human as a, as an organic robot. Right. Um, but for some people, they specifically mean like a teleoperator, like, you know, if you think like a six axis manipulator of what you traditionally think of as a robot, right. And then that tied into a computer system that can give it some kind of intelligence. Right. Um, so it's not a simple teleoperator that's ran by a human being. It has some type of automation with it. But to me, you know, if you really look at the foundational of, of controls theory and you look at how does technology get applied, you know, a, 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 a bug is a very simple robot, mm -hmm. right? It, could, it basically has a very simple sensing network. It can process that information and then it can do something about it. And when you take that approach, that's where you see a lot of these, these new tech hybrids, right? Where you can, you can put a chip into the brain of a cockroach and drive it. You know what I mean? Because you start realizing that all these systems work the same way. You just have to bridge the gap. So let me get your opinion on this. So we went we to the moon back, what, 67, 69, whatever it was, right? Yeah. You would think, you know, based on how far we ran from 1960, or we'll say 1950, 69, that by now we'd be like colonized Mars, be all over, all over space, right? But we're not. Why do you think that was? We just didn't have the drive for it? It wasn't a, a, a focal point or? Yeah, well, and that's what I'll say. Um, you remember I said like the three main issues with commercialization and with, with technology employment is first politics, then capital, and then the technology. We're based, everything that you have in the market right now is based off of technology that was discovered in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of scary, I think, you know? Like, yeah. And, and so, and that's kind of what I do with my business, right? Is I, I stay abreast of the journals. I stay abreast of like, where's the current technology, but even the stuff they taught in our undergrad program, they're like, yeah, you'll be lucky if you see this employed in your career, mm -hmm. right? You'll, you'll be lucky if you get to try these techniques out before, you know, your career's over because that's how slow industry moves sometimes. And, um, especially with, with space travel, um, people get this, this notion of, like it's a, it's a zero sum game, right? If we go to do space stuff, then we can't do stuff on earth. And, and it's completely the opposite, right? If I can figure out how to protect you in a zero G environment, mm -hmm. keep you safe there and have that be like a comfortable, flexible suit that you can wear and, and go anywhere. You don't think that has applications on earth? Like, yeah, you know what I mean? And, and same thing, if I can figure out how to make food production in an environment where there's basically no natural resources, then that we're one step closer to solving global hunger. And so every time, every technology you see that's done with the space program that that's available, you know, NASA, you know, the government has the STR, STTR program, the technology transfer program. You can take any of this technology as an entrepreneur and bring it into the market and use it to solve pain points. So, um, that's that's really I think there's a lack of political will. We were really distracted with the Cold War and then um, with the Gulf mm -hmm. and, you know, OIF, OEF. Um, we let stuff like that, you know, take our attention off of what really matters. And um, it, it comes to bite us in the butt, you know. Yes. Next, talk about you're currently in an entrepreneurship program at University of Washington. Um, so first question is, like, why to get a degree of master's in entrepreneurship? A lot of people say, like, you can't get a degree in entrepreneurship. You got to go and do it, right? So talk right. about that. So, um, you know, I was basically in my company, I was kind of hitting the threshold of like, how well can I execute? Using the knowledge that I have, using the network that I have, like, how well can I do? And it wasn't, I was, you know, not doing okay, but I'm not here to do okay. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm here to push to the next level and do the best that I can and build the best systems that I can and help as many people as I can. 
So um, I was looking at doing like an MBA or something like that to give me a little bit more of a formal business background because I had a strong technology background <clears throat> and operations background. And, um, you know, when I found the entrepreneurship program, I was like, hey, this is great. It's one year. It's super focused. You're locked up. Everybody that you're in the program with, we're all in the same classes. We all take the same classes together. And for the most part, we're all, you know, really focused on entrepreneurship. And so um, people, I think there's a, that is a very fair critique about like academics, right? That you can't take a theoretical, you can't learn to ride a bike by reading about it, right? You have to, you have to ride the bike. And um, the cool thing is though, is when I, you know, in this program, there's a lot of people who think like that, right? And we kind of have some back and forth with the academics on like, you know, what, how much out theory should we be doing versus application? This isn't an accelerator program, right? An accelerator program, you're 100% application, very light on theory. Um, but, it, but in our program, um, you know, we have a good amount of theory, but there, there's also expected to be execution and application, right? And, um, you know, I look at it like if you go get a theoretical physics degree, probably not going to help you that much if you're trying to be an entrepreneur. But, um, you know, one of the companies I've worked with, uh, he's a Vietnam vet and he has an undergraduate and a master's in electrical engineering. And he's already had a successful exit and, you know, he's on his next company doing something and he knows just enough to where in the room full of PhDs and technologists that he has, he can lead and guide the programs. And so he combines his leadership experience with his technical background and that helps him push forward. And I think the same is true with the entrepreneurship degree. It gives you a strong technical background in what, it, what is the mechanics of finance? What is the mechanics of all these other things? And if you look at it from that applied discipline standpoint, then you can get a lot of value out of it. But if, you're, if you come in and you sit, think, oh, I'm going to follow this checklist, I'm going to follow this textbook, yeah, you're, not, you're never going to be a good entrepreneur, right? Because that's not how it works. It's, a, it's an applied discipline. You have to go out and you have to do it every day. So what's the background of the people, of the, of the professors teaching? They have entrepreneurial backgrounds or what's their background? It's, it's wide. Um, some, you know, like my finance professor, she's uh, been a financial consultant on, and, and uh, Diane, she, she, she's fantastic, right? She's been a financial consultant for startups pretty much her whole career. And, you know, ton, ton of successful fundraising, ton of, ton of successful exits, like that's what she does. Right. And a lot of them kind of have consultancies that are specialized in their area. Like, you know, they, they either focus for startups or in business generally, excuse me. Um, some of them have already had exits, like they've done startups and, and whatnot. And some of them are, are pure uh, theoreticians like Stanford PhD or, uh, you know, Harvard Business School. Like they, they have this really rich pedigree of um, good business training. And so it's, it's really nice to kind of have that mix. You know, if you have someone who's at the cutting edge of business research, come in and give you like some pointers on, Hey, when you get to this point, don't do X because I've, I've realized 500, the, you know, out of the 4,000 startups, we went and analyzed. That's so important. What not to do. Yeah. X is going to be a problem for you. Right. And so that that's, and then you get to pick their brain and you do it with the understanding that, yeah, some of the stuff is theoretical. And then, you know, you talk to your applied person about your applied. But I think that's true anywhere. Like you go to the right advice that you need for the right situation. So is it, it does each person in, the, in there have to like start a company? You already have a company started. You have to start one within the program or? Yeah, that's the baseline expectation is that you will at least have a project that even if it's just like, okay, this is like a, like a theoretical one or like one I'm just thinking about, you at least have a project and you're working it through the program. Mm -hmm. Because all of our exercises are said, okay, great. For your idea, now go translate what we did. Oh, we did this assignment. We did this lecture. Now translate this for your for your idea, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I basically group us into three categories. There's people like me that I've already launched and they're kind of like in, in doing it. Maybe they've had a successful exit. One of the guys is in our group is a VC. 
Um, so, you know, I, I like that. That's interesting. I like that a lot. Right? It's, it's very interesting. Uh, and he's he's awesome to talk to. You know, we've got guys from Microsoft. We've got you know people talk, very the VC about someone like talking about doing your customer research. You know, yeah. So and so that's Group A, and then Group B is some people who are like, yeah, they know they want to do a thing, but they're very early in the ideation stage. They're very refining it. They're still getting ready to launch. And then there's Group C, which is like people straight out of undergrad. They know they want to be in the startup world. So like this is how they they bridge that gap versus having to go work five years in a corporate environment. They come get this degree, and then they're going to go get a job somewhere, probably at a startup or in a new business environment at, a, at an enterprise scale. So is there at the end of the course, there's like some kind of pitch competitions, opportunities like fundraisers, a program? Yeah. And then you, you're required to compete in some of these pitch competitions. And then there's op, there's a ton of opportunities at, in the University of Washington environment. Um, and that's something I, I do offer my clients is like, hey, if you want to run your stuff through the, through, through the program or through a pitch competition, you're only required to have one student on your team. Mm -hmm. And th that could be me. Yeah. Right? I can help you get into these, these competitions. And that's really what they're there for is to stimulate new tech coming into the market, stimulate stuff. Even if it's not necessarily successful, it's, it's try to, to push things forward and fail forward. Now, as a student program, are you able to take opportunities, other opportunities like those, like the startup hall, those tech stars? There's a, one incubator for like software, another incubator for hardware. These have a VR, AR uh, hall, but I think that closed down. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of that, and a lot of us are participating in these these different kind of uh, you know curriculars. There's the engineering and health you know practicum. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of these collaborations between the business school and the engineering department, or between uh, the medical department. And then um, there's obviously we're in Seattle, so we're we're second only to California as far as VC investment yeah. and, and all that. So there's a ton of great ecosystem stuff here. Um, and I think, uh, Robert sound sustainability, Yeah, you know, he's, he's in, in the program. He, I think he's probably a great example of that, of taking advantage of stuff that's on, on campus and then also going off campus and taking advantage of, or, you know, really making the most of the Seattle startup ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, Seattle, you know, it has its criticisms, but if you have a tech startup, I mean, it's one of the better places to be, right? Just, yeah, that's why I moved here. Yeah, I mean, if you're in California, everybody's a hustler, right? The guy yeah. at the grocery store has a startup. So I know, right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you know. I feel like you kind of got to earn your stripes before you go jump in that market. Um, but being up here, it's there's a ton of fantastic resources. A lot of the vendors for the projects I work on, they have offices up here or based up here. And then a lot of the clients I want to work with are also based up here. So to me, it, it made a ton of sense. Next, talk about, um, I think you're electrical and computer engineering training by the state of Washington. What is that? Yeah, so if you do an undergraduate uh, degree or you go out and you get 10 years experience working under uh, a licensed engineer, mm -hmm. you can sit for um, the fundamentals of engineering mm -hmm. exam. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, for doctors, you have to do your, um, you do your, your exams at the end of school and then you go out and do your internship or your residency. And then you take another exam after that. So like for us, the FE is at the end of school and then you have to go out and work for a while and then you can get licensed as a professional engineer. And um, it's really cool. There's somebody uh, that I work with that's a strategic partner for our company. Um, he gets clued in on a lot of what I'm doing and he's a PE. So he can kind of review my work as I go. And then also having him, he's a great business mentor, but, but having him also as a PE, so as I grow as an engineer, is a, is a ton of help. Um, and then so... There's a regulatory requirement uh, for a lot of projects, especially if you're doing infrastructure stuff, where you have to have a PE or a licensed, uh, you know, engineer of some kind uh, sign off on your projects. So it kind of pushes you towards that of getting your stamp. 
So, Jay, at your core, are you a businessman, entrepreneur, a tech person, people person, or something else, or all the above? I, I really, I look at it through three lenses, right? Mind, body, and soul, right? So, mind for me is business and tech stuff. That's like building things that, that is, to me, it's all one thing, right? Which is just building systems that are going to leave a better place after I leave, right? And then body, like, I like snowboarding. And I've been doing snowboard racing, so that's kind of the pinnacle of my 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 body stuff, right? But I'm I'm constantly training, constantly going out camping and, and backpacking as much as I can. You know, um, I have some limitations, but everybody does. So I, you know, fortunately for me, like I I feel better the more I get out, and be active. So um, I try and do that as much as I can. And then my third lens is music, right? Then to me, that's where like so the soul lies. That's that's where the rest of my art stems from. And what I found is the more I grow in each of these dimensions, the more it relates back to each other. Um, but I, I have found that by cutting everything else out of your life that doesn't correlate to the three key things that you're interested in, that's how you grow and move forward. Because if you have this focus where, oh yeah, I'm doing this this week, I'm doing that this week, I'm all over the place, really hone in, hone in on, on who you are and what you're trying to build. And that'll help you grow forward. How often do you go camping? As often as it can, uh, uh, it depends, you know, obviously if business picks up, you get, you get busy, but I try to do at least one, you know, week in a month. So um, do you do road camping, sleeping on the tent or do you do the glamping with the RV? Oh yeah, no, we'll, we'll do uh backcountry trails yeah. and, and primitive <laughs> camping, you know, we'll hike in all our stuff. Um, the longest I've done is like a four or five day, like, you know, hike through yeah. backcountry. So last week I went hunting for the first time, elk hunting with John Neff. I introduced him to him because they had RVs and stuff, right? And one thing I learned, I am in freaking horrible shape. Yeah. <laughs> Those fucking miles kicked my ass. It would, I mean, I saw a, uh, a guy who did two weeks of camp, uh, two weeks of, of backpacking like that. And uh, he's, he's a, I think he's an MD. So he, he monitored his, his testosterone levels all through it, right? Because he's also like a, a triathlon athlete. So it's something he, he, he watches his, his blood levels and stuff. And after two weeks of camping and like backpacking, he saw the biggest spike he's ever seen in his life. Yeah. You know, more than high altitude training, more than laying in a stream. So it just, it goes to show you, it's like, it's something you put that stress on your body and yeah. you realize how out of shape you're is. And then your body responds. I can just feel my heart. Like, boop, 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 boop. Yeah. Okay. It's good for you. <laughs> I don't know about all that, but yeah, it, it is good for you. Um, so snowboarding, how long have you been doing that? Um, I did, last year was my first full season. And then, uh, the year before that, I kind of got like a couple days. So did snow. you do skiing before or just jumped right into snowboarding? No, just jump, yeah. Cause I skateboarded when I was a kid. Okay. I did, easy, kind of easy transition. Yeah. And, um, I, I really like it. I really like how it kind of forces me out of my head mm -hmm. and really just makes you in tune with what you're doing. And so for me, it's a very meditative kind of like place to be. The other thing I don't people realize about the state of Washington area is so much like nature stuff, right? There's snow skiing, there's mountains, yeah. you know, you can go to the coast and go deep sea fishing, you know, there's a lot of stuff here to do, you know? I love, I love that aspect of it. You know, that was like, people talk about like the hedonic treadmill, mm -hmm. right? Where like, you know, you're always constantly look, trying to get to that thing you want. And then when you get there, you no longer want it, right? So you're constantly just striving and striving and striving. And that's, that's what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. So to me, I kind of look at Seattle as like my gut, my golden yeah. treadmill, you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember when I went out county last week, the first two days it was foggy everywhere, right? And I said, there's really no, there's no fog, whatever. I'm like, man, this is like, you can't see nothing. The third day the fog lifted, like, oh my God, this is so nice. It's like, gorgeous. Yeah. oh man, it's nice, right? It's, it's uh, honestly, you know, and I've, I've, I've traveled around the world. This is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Yeah, for me, the most beautiful place I've been was Salzburg, Austria. They did the Sound of Music. Oh man. That's number one. This is number two, yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't done a lot of Europe. That's, that's yeah. really where I want to go next. So how serious are you about snowboarding? 
Uh, I'll, I'll take it, see how far we go. Yeah. Um, last year I, I competed and uh, I, I got the men's uh, Pacific Northwest Open Class Championship for like the amateur level. But there's also not a whole lot of people showing out during COVID. Yeah. So um, this year, my goal is to get uh, FIS points, which mm -hmm. is like the governing body for the World Cup and all that. And that kind of like ties into the Olympics down the line. But, you know, I, I, I'm i not really like thinking like, oh, I you know need to do like this whole career out of mm -hmm. it. For me, it's very much like the more I challenge myself and make myself better. And the more I can get out in the community, it like it, it's like this crossroads where some of the best business advice I've ever got has been on a chairlift. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the people that you meet who are also competing or are also athletes and living this dual life, like those are, have, it's just like the Marines, right? Like those guys are incredible human beings who are trying to, to push themselves and grow. And when you put yourself in that environment, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're gonna find good people. How hard or easy was it to learn how to do snowboarding? Or is this a matter of falling down 20,000 times? And, yeah, you know, and that's that's why I really like it versus uh, skateboarding. You know, you fall down on skateboarding, you broke your wrist, you're out for a season. You yeah, know I mean, you do stuff Snow like that. Snow versus hard concrete. Exactly. So there, there is danger. There is an element of threat, right? Mm -hmm. You're you are at risk. So you have to be aware of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but if, you're, if you take the precautions, you do your ORM, and then you can, you can fail a lot. And just like business, the more you fail, the better you get. And you also make music too. Like, yeah. like a producer makes music or something else? Uh, I, I like to play out more than uh, produce. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really feel like that's like not something I can really get into until I'm retired, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, or have a lot more time on my hands. Um, it's been pre pretty cool uh, lately. You know, obviously we're in COVID, so it was like me sitting alone playing for a while. Um, I used to perform a lot when I was uh, in school and, and all that. Um, so now like being able to get back out and meet people and, and play and stuff, that's, that's really nice. And, um, there's a guy who's with me in the program. He has a, a music startup, uh, based, based saying his, he calls it comp. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and the whole, it, he has a really nice studio set up. So we go and we've been jamming and that's been nice. So Jace, you have your, your startup, you're going to get a master's degree, your snowboarding, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you gotta, you know, take care of stuff at home, you know? Like one thing you would forget as an entrepreneur, you still got to wash your clothes, you know, cook dinner, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Like, so how do you manage all this stuff? Like, how do you make sure you focus when you need to focus on day, to, day by day? So I used to be really prescriptive and um, just like block it out and like, hey, you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Just like being in the Marine Corps and, you know, just kind of like bam, 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 bam. And then what I find is, especially with entrepreneurship, it's a really creative endeavor. And um, what's hard for me is like, if I feel like I have gas left in the tank, then I need to burn it. I need, I need to keep popping right but what i found is no you know schedule yourself at 70 to 90 percent if you're scheduling yourself at 100 to 120 percent you're gonna fail so leave a little gas in the tank make sure you're putting blocks in your schedule for boredom you have to leave time because because entrepreneurship you're doing a lot of creative problem solving creativity stems from your brain's process for boredom that that is the fertile soil that that new ideas come from so you have to leave room to be bored. And a lot of times, what's the most boring thing you can do? Fold laundry, you know what I mean? Like, so leave blocks in your schedule where you're bored, you have some downtime, and it's really counterintuitive for me because I'm, I'm a very like push yourself hard person. But like making that space to do something, like maybe there's a show you're really interested in that, that has something connect business connection for you, watch that, you know? Make sure your, your sources of media and everything, if you are having this downtime, they're, they're feeding into what you're doing. Don't just go watch, you know, great, British Bake Off for no reason. I mean, if you're a baker, great, but make sure whatever you're watching is is helping you push forward. And uh, but leave yourself that downtime, and you'll you'll find great ideas. I'm a big proponent too. Like you know, a lot of people like you know, 
they want to have every minute accounted for, right? Oh, I got to listen to podcasts or whatever. I'm recording like, like I do my best. I need to do every day, but I'll do my best at least once a week, 30 minutes. I just like have nothing on, right? You got to. And just like yeah. let my brain wander. And it's amazing ideas that come up when your brain can work without outside stimuli. Yeah. And that, that was really hard for me. And um, Samir and I talked about this uh, and another uh, person in, in the cohort with us and, um, you know, about how easy it is to burn yourself to the ground. And unless you, you put in those stop caps of, I will have a day off this weekend and I will do nothing. You know, and it's really frustrating if you're trying to get stuff done, but you realize that by doing that, your brain rests a little bit and then you're 20 times more effective during the week. And then you realize like all these emails you get, probably only 5% are moving your business forward, right? That's right. Uh, well, maybe I don't need to look at email every day, right? Yeah. And, but now you're not stressed out about it. Now, you, yep. now you're making a tactical decision of this is the stuff that's important. This isn't important. And you're not stressed out. So you're able to do that with clarity of mind. And um, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. So Jay, you already talked about this some, but how do you take care of yourself? Uh, you know, I, I really, like I said, I take those three lenses and I try and, and balance those things out. I found that if I don't balance one of those things, it affects the others hard, right? And usually for me, the, the hard part is um, the body part, right? Like, you know, like you said, wash your clothes, taking care of yourself. For me, usually that's the first thing that goes, you know, it's like if there's other priorities, I'm, I'm the last priority. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna take, make sure everybody that I have commitments to is taken care of before I take care of myself. And, um, but you know, what you have to realize is, is if you're drowning, you can't, you can't help anybody else. Yeah. You just like the military, you have to make sure you're scared away and you're ready, you're ready to go. You have all your stuff in order before you can go out and really help somebody else. So how do you do this? Like, you know, like, like, you know, Elon Musk famously works $10,000 a week, you know, supposedly, you know, yeah. I have one friend, he works 21 days on three days off, you know, some people don't work weekends. What's your thing with that? How do you schedule that? <laughs> Um, I, I think a lot of, a lot of those guys, they count, like if they do a lunch meeting with a friend that kind of does work, you know what I mean? And, um, so I think the biggest part of it is just do something that you're really passionate about and you love and it won't feel like work, you know? And when it does feel like work, there is stuff that is going to suck. Make sure you block that into your tolerable working hours and you're disciplined about calling a cut and calling it. And you'll find that that time pressure just like when you had a school assignment due, do, you know, and you have that deadline, it artificially pushes you to get more done, if that makes sense. So by not allowing your schedule to be expandable, and you know, I honestly, as an entrepreneur, if you're working less than fifty or sixty hours a week, you're probably not serious, you know. Um, but if you're serious, you're going to block that schedule in. You're going to lock it in, and then that time is going to hit you. If you're hitting hundred hours a week, which I've done before. It, it, you're at that point, you're getting diminishing returns. Yeah. So the sweet spot is somewhere between 60 and 80 hours a week. And, um, anything more than that's just gratuitous. One thing that's funny, like, I know I, I have an account of medium, like blogs and stuff. Yeah. You always have these, like these startup people, right. Who, and they've made it right. They've been acquired or whatever. have a lot of money. And they're always about, if you're a startup press, you should be, you should be working 40 hours a week. Too much. Like everyone's like, you've made it right. Like, yeah, we haven't made it yet. Right. <laughs> of course you need to work nine to five. You got, you got a team, you got millions of dollars of funding, you know, like, you can we're, rest. We're, we're still yeah. here. We're, you know, we're, we're not going to make it four hours a week, right? It always amazes me when people like grinding through. Now, oh, only work four hours a week, you know? Yeah, and but it is important to realize, like, you know, if it's something that really for me, it's bookkeeping. Bookkeeping kills me, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I know it's something I've got to do. So you, you know, realistically, you're going to do only so much of that a week before you like you just want to quit your job. You know what I mean? So like, you have to balance that out or find somebody who can help you. You know, if you're doing well enough, that's what you need. Um, but don't be afraid. And I think, you know, the opposite of, of this syndrome, right, is 
oh, you know, I've got this going on. Oh, I don't want to put too much time in this because I'm, I'm afraid it's not going to work out. Well, if you know, if you wouldn't put $20,000 on what you're working on, you'd get a different idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you wouldn't take a Saturday lunch meeting with somebody that you think is a cool person to talk about your idea and how you guys can add value for each other, do something else. So you bring up a point. A lot of things about entrepreneurs, they think it's sexy, you know, all this mythical stuff. But times like, you know, like you, see, you might have to spend like all day doing your bookkeeper, right? Like yeah. copy receipts. Talk about how you deal with that, like the unsexy stuff, you know, like, you know, following for LLC, you know, doing all that kind of mess that no one wants to do, but you have to. Um, I, I really like the phrase delegate and elevate, mm -hmm. right? And so that should be your first strategy as much as possible. Get somebody to help you, get somebody who knows what they're doing because they're going to be more efficient at it. And all that friction you're causing yourself, if you take a look at your dollar value per hour on what you make, and then if you take a look at how much it, it would cost to hire somebody, you know, just for a couple hours to fix that problem, you have to be doing that because otherwise you're costing your business money. Um, but if it is something where it's like, okay, I don't have the time or resources to do that, then throw in some headphones, jam, you know, light a candle and just you know, relax and do what you're doing, sip some tea. And um, having that relaxed mindset, I think helps me like just get into a groove and, and do it, you know. So talk about this some um, and go back to Elon Musk. In an interview a few years ago, with some podcast person, I was on TV mm -hmm. and like Tesla, just like done great. SpaceX had done something great, you know, it, it was like the war was his orchard, right? And the guy asked Elon, how's life right now? It seems pretty great. He's like, if I'm honest with you, my life sucks right now. He's like, it sucks for you, me. And like Elon kind of explained all the background stuff, right? Yeah. All the sucking shit stuff he had to do, right? So can you talk about that some? Yeah, um, I if you haven't read the Musk, uh, the, Elon's uh, biography that came out. Um, I think, you know, the guy did a really good job of being balanced, right? He's not like some sycophant that's like, you know, singing his praises. And um, I'm not a fan of fanboys at mm -hmm. all, but I will say that, you know, my research bears out uh, his companies have a higher uh, R&D ROI because that's the space we're in. Like, mm -hmm. that's what I'm, that's what I would call the mission state of my company, right? Is to maximize your ROI for the R&D that you're doing. And they do a fantastic job doing that. Um, and really his mindset is this is what he's doing with his life. Right. And the capital and, and, and the cash that he gets and everything else, that's just a tool to get that job done. And with those tools comes a lot of problems, right? So if you're, you're a startup founder and you're, you want to do a, a VC scale billion dollar idea and you want to take on a bunch of cash, well, guess what? Like think about if you were a drug dealer, right. And you got baked in with the mob and they handed you a pile of money, you don't think there's some strings attached to that? It's the same thing, man. You, so you take somebody else's cash, they're gonna have expectations and you're gonna have to live to that. And he is wrecking his body right now, trying to live to those extra expectations. So money, right. money isn't everything. No, I agree. Um, so next let's talk about, um, I think we're just right, he had a, a, a paper published in American Society of Mechanical, Mechanical Engineers. Yeah, so that was really cool. I did uh, undergraduate research, um, with a, with a professor at Kennesaw State. And basically what we were looking at is um, with Industry 4.0, you're you're starting to see this, this huge divide that we have between uh, like computing and IT stuff and industrial technology. It's starting to, to bridge the gap. And so what the paper was on was uh, we have a ton of open source robotic stuff. We have really um, industrial PLC, you know, old crusty controllers. Well, Siemens came out with a bridge that kind of like works the gap. Right, that makes it okay to use some of this new open source stuff in an industrial environment without people getting upset about it. Because really, again, the po po politics is your first thing. And if you go on a plant floor, 
the guys who are, you know, old, they've been there for years. They know a brick that works and they want to use that brick. They don't want to use new, new fancy stuff because, you know, it comes with a lot of problems and their job depends on uptime and reliability. So what our paper did was we showed how do you make the two talk, keep it secure, keep it, you know, where everything works right. And um, the example we used was like a automated water delivery robot. We, you know, we basically, we had a, a bench that had a water tank with it that could fill up and, and close off. And um, we had a mobile robot and we simulated the robot driving to different positions and then the tank would fill or empty, right? So like the robot would go to this spot in the room and then the water would drain out like it just made a delivery It'd drive back and pick up more water and then go back. So um, it's a really cool project. I learned a lot doing it. And um, that's the kind of stuff that I, I've, I've done a lot of similar work for our clients where I'm able to save them, you know, thousand dollars a year and thousands of dollars a year and licensing fees because I'm able to use an open source, you know, thing that kind of connects into a proprietary system and it's the best of both worlds. So Jay, how long have you been involved with tech? I mean, I got, I got my first DOS machine when I was, I was a kid, you know, and uh, my, to my dad's credit, you know, he's very much a working class man, um, but he always like supported that interest and um, was always doing science kits with me and stuff like that. So, um, that kind of fed into everything else that I did. Uh, my, my, my high school job was working at a music store, but a lot of times I was doing repairs and, and you know, on, on the, the stuff and that music interest drove in to give me stronger technology interest. And I was working on the computer, you know, in the store and doing all that. And then, um, my whole job in the Marine Corps is just nothing but tech, you know, is, is, uh, the whole, if you think of the internet as a tree, mm-hmm. right. With like the, you know, your cell phone or laptop as a leaf, and the trunk being like your wideband systems, I learned how to work and repair that entire flow, you know? So from your point of view, talk about some pros and cons you've seen in the tech industry. Uh, you know, a, a big pro is um, it's kind of an open sandbox, right? Um, you can kind of go and attack what you want. And t- the con of that is you, you have, you meet a lot of people who have like this God complex, right? Of like they can, <laughs> They can uh, challenge and tackle whatever they want to. Um, but I think that, you know, what we call the tech industry really grew out of like the previous, what was called IT or communication systems uh, or telecoms, right? And you can't, you can't make that same division anymore. Going forward, it, every, every industry is a tech industry, right? You, you pull up the Deloitte matrix on digital transformation and you just see some, some like the telecom and IT because they're closer to it are reaping the benefits, but the stuff that's, that's happening there, it's going to happen to every industry. So, you know, the con, the con of the tech world is that it's, it's going to suck for a lot of people who aren't on the inside, right? You know, if you're on the inside, you're thinking about problem solving, you're thinking about how can we help the world? But if you're on the outside, it's like you're, you're standing in front of a bulldozer and not everybody wants to have to learn a million apps and do all this, right? It's not the natural state for a human being. Um, but it's coming fast. Yeah, I agree. Um, what's what's kind of, what kind of new tech is out there that, that excites you? Oh, there's oh man. So yeah, I mean, if you're if you aren't watching the uh, Helion Fusion in Oregon right now, like that that's just incredible what those guys are doing. Um, and I was really skeptical when I, when I heard of it because it's the only private sector push that's that's really getting traction. Um, but what they're doing is is just incredible. If if that if that goes through, like we talk about, we're in industry 4.0. Industry 5.0, like the, the, the most of the work that needed for that has already been done in the lab. And so what that looks like going forward, 15, you know, 10, 15 years from now is, is, is just going to be a different planet, man. 
and um, between fusion, if it, blockchain, people think about just in cryptocurrency and stuff like that. The the tech, what blockchain can do for pushing like our our general state of technology forward is really exciting, and and it's like thinking about you know the internet as just being a banking interface. It's just limiting it, you know, crypto to to, to being currency, but it, you know, ton of applications there. Um, AI honestly scares scares the crap out of me with how fast it's going. Um, and it's really going to be the haves and the haves not on access to that technology. And, um, that's a huge one. The, the bioinformatics, being able to do large scale, uh, bio stuff and, and being able to analyze proteins and in new and creative ways. Um, whether that's through crowdsourcing or through, um, deep AI and deep learning, right. That, that, you know, the frontiers of that are only bounded by our ethical constraints. So that's, that's a good point. Um, how should ethics interface with tech? Uh, a lot of times it doesn't. Yeah, you know, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, I think it's one of those things where you're either proactive about it or it just comes and gets you. And um, I do think there's a business incentive, right? If you're an entrepreneur in the tech space to seriously consider what are the ramifications of what you're doing? Has Uber seen that a lot, right? Great example. You know, of, hey, that their brand was damaged. And Very say, much so. And, and I mean, there's a lot to be said for, yeah, you know, 60% of people are going to disagree with whatever you do. And especially if you get to a position of power, people get jealous, they're going to talk crap, right? But at the same time, like there's companies that are really successful, but have made a brand for themselves of we're just trying to do the best. We're going to mess up sometimes, but we're trying to do the best we can. And um, once you turn that switch, then, you know, social capital. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs know social capital. And like I said, that political consideration that's your first barrier to whatever you're trying to do. If you don't have buy-in from people, it's going to cost you a million dollars to do any little thing. And um, a lot of these big companies that have, have kind of like, you know, l- things they could have prevented and things they had controlled to to be with, within the wherewithal. I mean, any given solution that you're working on, you have constraints, right? There's things that they had in their control that they messed up on. And then instead of owning it and fixing it, they continued to double down. And then now, you know, when it goes, you go to hire an engineer, you go to pay your vendors and everything, all your prices go up. So I think that's the best way to look at it is put a dollar value on your ethics, not, not in a way that they can be bought, bought or sold, but, but take a look at your bottom line. And if you are an ethical person and you aren't doing the right thing, it's, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Jay, what's your definition of good code? Good code to, to me, right? Good code is well-documented. Right. I should be able to hand this to a person who's who's tangentially familiar with this operating system or this language. And they should be able to read your comments as they go through your code and understand it without, you know, having any issue. Now, from a performance standpoint, like good code is kind of context dependent, right? What's really good in one context is really bad for another. So, you know, start with what is the end user's value? Right. And then work your way back. And sometimes the end user's value is if you can just figure this problem out for me at all, then it, it's incredibly valuable. So it doesn't matter if it takes, you know, five, 10 minutes for it to work on the problem. And then you, you spit out a solution. But sometimes it's like, I just need something fast. Right. And it's a really simple thing. And the only thing that matters is speed or the only thing that matters is appearances. So you have to write to what is the end user's value and work your way backwards. Jay, talk some about how tech people communicate, how not tech people communicate. What I mean is like, if I was to yeah. say, Jay, not tech person, open the door, you'll get up open the door. But but then I got to, if you're a tech person, say, hey, Jay, tech person, stand up a 90 degree angle, 
use 0.23 thrusts of physical energy, turn the door, blah, blah, blah. You know, can you talk about some things called storyboarding? Yeah, you know, technical, technical people, technically minded people were very literal, right? And it comes with the understanding that I'm trying to do a, a thing in reality and I have constraints. And so I know that I have to hit each one of those. And um, so especially if you're working with the technical team, it it's very helpful if you say, okay, this is my goal. This is my desired end state. This is the current state that we're in. This is kind of what I want. What do you think? Right. And that'll get you a lot further versus like, you know, if, because a technical person is going to be, if you hand them a six point list and you say, this is what I want, want done. They're going to give you exactly what's on that six point list. No more, no less. And they're not going to read between the lines, right? They're not going to, especially this is true of technicians, right? If you go to a, a CNC shop floor, the places where they're turning machinery, you're going to hand them a drawing and they're going to carve out that piece of steel. What's on that drawing? No more, no less, right? And if you make something that's impossible for them to work on, they're going to hand it right back to you and say, hey, you're an idiot, you know? Or if you put the, the holes in the wrong place, you know, just imagine that. Like you had a block of steel and you had to have holes in a certain place, but you didn't put it right on the drawing or like, you know, you don't communicate in some fashion. Oh, this thing has to attach here, but you know, oh, I shouldn't have put the holes there, but it should have been common sense. That's not going to fly. Just whatever you think common sense is, just take that out of the question, make it very explicit or make it very goal-driven. And then as technical people on the, on the flip side of that, you have to learn to ask questions, try and figure out what the end value is. Um, one thing that's got me out of a lot of bad situations is I saw something and my red flag went off and I'm like, Hey, why are we doing this? What's the point? How does this affect the end customer? And, um, you know, and then again, on the flip side, if you're on the business side of that and a technical person asks you why we're doing this, they're not trying to challenge you. They're not trying to say, Oh, I don't trust you or anything like that. They're trying to help you and they're trying to get clarity. So if you respond negatively to that, you're going to lose that person fast. Yeah. My criticism, a lot of some tech people like they're, they're always building stuff, right? Yeah. But, but they never finish, right? No. And they never, they never ask a question like, why am I doing this? You know, just like, what's yeah. the, pro what's the process for this? You know? And, um, you know, as a technical person too, your, your first instinct is to build, mm -hmm. right? Oh, I have an idea for something. Let me go, go build it. And I see a lot of tech entrepreneurs that have an engineering background or something and your build, build, build the number one reason why startups fail right across the board, what, whatever it is you're trying to do, the number one reason a company fails is no market need. Yeah. Right. It's not the team. It's not the capital. And, the, and this is one excuse. I, I, I mean, we all have our excuses. Mine's not enough time. Right. Like that's, that's when I always tell myself, but a lot of people say, Oh, I don't have enough money to make this happen. Money is not, not the, the problem. Usually money, especially in this environment that we're in right now, yeah. money's easy, right? If that's what you need and you have a solid business plan, you have proof, you have traction, Money's easy to find. What's what's hard to find is a solid market need, understanding that market need, and putting the right peg in the right hole. Yeah, the money is a good point because a couple of months ago I, I did a, a interview with a guy named James Newell, who's a VC here in Seattle. Of course, I do my research on people, right? Right. I didn't know this in 2020, despite the COVID pandemic, VCs invested more money than ever in history. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like as by far they broke the record. July first of this year, they're already at nine percent. Yeah. So James, like, you just have to have this idea, but the money's out there, right? He said that we're not giving away, but it's like, it's kind of easy for now. You got to have some kind of traction, but yeah, he said the money's definitely out there. And he said they expect the money to be out there the next two or three years because they said I have to invest money, right? Yeah. You have to put that capital to work. Everybody's looking for an outsized return. And, um, but I, I do think, and, and this is something that um, I don't hear often enough, take any advice that you get with what you're trying to attack 
and make sure that you're putting that advice in the right bucket. And what I mean by that is the advice I would give a small or medium business, a mom and pop shop is different from what I would give a, a, a mid cap company, you know, two to a hundred million a year is different from what I would give for uh, enterprise scale or someone who's trying to take a VC style startup and, and grow to that. So what a VC is going to tell you, if you go and, and read zero to one Peter Thiel's book and you listen to his advice, he's telling as the you know leading VC in, in, California, he's telling you like, this is what he looks for. And if you live and die by what he's, he's telling you, you better make sure that you're building the kind of company that he wants. Right. But if you're, if you're building a mom and pop shop and you build your company that way, you're going to go out of business. You know I mean? They're building a 101 odds. We're swinging for the fences. We're going to put some money behind it and we're trying to own a billion dollar yeah, we're market. Going, we're, going, we're not hitting, we're not butting the ball. We're going for grants. Yeah. And that's not what everybody needs, right? If you haven't had an exit before and I haven't had an exit before, right? My, my goal is the mid market. I'm bootstrapping to get up to the mid market and get some capital so that on my next project, right? I can either use my existing resources or maybe I had an exit, whatever, whatever happens, you know, that's not why I build, I build my business to add value. That's not what I keep in mind. But Knowing that building that up to that point, that's going to give me the chops I need. If you handed me, you know, a hundred million dollars right now, I wouldn't do that. Right. And it's not because I'm not confident in myself. It's not because I don't, I don't have growth. It's because my business doesn't need that. That's not what's going to help me help the most people. And so you got to think about that. Some, some companies are destined for the mid market. They're a regional $40 million a year company. And that's fantastic. You should not see that as a failure. And you also got to know a lot of the advice that you're hearing for startups and what you should do for your business and everything does not apply to you. Does not apply to you, and you need to look at a different source of information, a different source of streams. What you learn is completely different to make that work versus a billion dollar startup. So, like, keep that in mind. Big point. So, um, as many as you know, I have a, a nonprofit called Bunker Labs. We have the military connected start companies, an entrepreneur journey, and we have partners with rework called Veterans of Residence for rework gives like eight military connected people like free space in I think 20 different cities and Jay's actually a part of the cohort right now. So I just want to turn over to Jay, like talk about your VR experience, how do you apply it? How the, how's that been helping you out? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, I was looking at the VRR program since I was still in my undergraduate program. Cause I, I knew I was, I was consulting inside in school and I, it's something I knew I wanted to do. And I mean, I just can't, I can't tell you how much value I get out of it. Being able to come down and, and talk to you, you and Matt and um, you know, and bounce ideas off of, and then the cohort members that we have, um, it, it, when you're a veteran, you're already kind of isolated from the world. When you're an, an entrepreneur and a veteran, like not a whole lot of people understand that walk and not, not a whole lot of people understand what it's like. So be surrounded in lock shields with people who get it and know what you're going through. And then also are on your side, you know, it's just incredibly valuable. So, you know, if you want to support veteran entrepreneurship, Bunker Labs is, is a great way to do it because they're actually doing real work. They're making sure that people are pushing forward and doing what they're supposed to do. And um, the network that we get through that and the events that they host at the national level, it's just it's just incredible. You know, every time I come, every every time I make that one hour slot, it just adds, it does nothing but add value for my business. Yeah, shout out to, to Samir. He's another VR member. He does adds a lot of value. He's helped a lot of people out. Yeah. He's been, he's been a great person. So Jay, next talk about your, your company, is it, is, is it Heliopath Labs? Yeah, Heliopath. Heliopath Labs. Yeah. Talk about how we got started. We are focused on right now what your, your vision for it is moving forward. Sure. So, uh, but, you know, basically I graduated uh, out of my undergraduate program, moved up here um, to, to get things kicked off. And um, on on my drive out, you know, was when I, I sent out my first um, proposals 
to prospective clients, you know, off the referrals that we had. And so I was literally, you know, shooting off proposals in the moving truck on the way out. And, um, and we started small, you know, uh, all, all was, was basically me in a room and with a computer. And, um, when I unpacked my stuff, I, I didn't even have furniture for a long time. You know what I mean? It was literally, I had my hammock and my computer and it was just drawing a straight line between the two. And, um, so that, you know, that was tough. And, um, but you know, we made progress. We started making sales. We started doing good projects. Uh, I kind of, um, you know, my vision for this company is based off of, uh, we have a really fragmented R and D market, uh, in this country relative to other countries. That's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the startups that Peter Thiel invests in and Elon Musk and all them, that's one of the reasons why they really stand out and pop right? is because they're having this really outsized ROI on R and D. It's not, it's not necessarily like that in a lot of other countries. And, um, the reason why it is, is if you look at the total product life cycle, imagine, you know, from, from concept all the way through fielding a product to getting it to market and then recycling that product or, you know, in the end of life cycle, imagine if every new company had to build an entire waste management system, right? That's insane. And, and so right now what we expect is you have a new company. It doesn't matter if you're a mom and pop shop all the way up to a billion dollar startup, you're going to have to rebuild out a whole R and D system. You have to learn how to do all that. And that's really hard. Right. And that's why, you know, when you look at the ROI startups and, and small businesses have the worst ROI, right. But it's only matched on the other side by enterprise and VC players because they're just throwing paint to see what sticks. So my vision is, um, you know, in the mid market, you really see high ROI on R and D because they have a, a good understanding of their market. They have a good understanding of the park lines. I want to bring some of that that wisdom out to the the, the sides, right? And then in the mid market, they leave a lot of money on the table. They could be doing more investment. And so wherever people are at, you know, whatever institution you're in, if you're trying to do something a little bit new, as a high impact project, we can help you go from a sketch to having your first prototype you know, making an MVP, making something that you can take to your stakeholders and be like, Hey, we made this, you know, do you guys want to proceed? And, um, that to me, if we can do that and we can, we can remove some of the waste from the system, then that means there's a lot more high impact technology that can help people come into market. And the stuff that does come to market makes sense. It's not, you know, no market need, um, kill, kill projects early and fast, and then support really strong the ones that do. Um, but right now, especially in this country, it's so fragmented. And, and my vision is if we have a solid system where everybody knows, Hey, I have this thing, you know, I can just use this app or call this line and, or I can visit this office and I know I can go from X to Y. That's my vision. For your customers, how tech savvy do you think to be? Uh, some of the, some of my customers, you know, aren't, aren't very tech savvy at all. It helps. Um, the biggest determinant is what is your commitment to the project, right? Like if you're doing the legwork and you're doing the footwork and you're, you're bouncing back and forth with me really quick, the more you put and more shoulder you put into it, the more value you're going to get out of it. Right. Um, and then now, you know, we used to do a lot of fat, flat fee projects, but now I'm moving over to more of a retainer model to where we can just fully help you as much as we can. And I think that's helping. Um, but yeah, you don't necessarily have to have a hard tech background. Um, what you, what you need to have is, you know, an idea of where you're at and I can help you walk through that process. Everybody's going to be at, you know, a certain technology readiness level and then a certain business readiness level. Right. And that's going to look different depending on whatever project you're working on. You might be an enterprise company that has an early stage idea and need to work it through the pr process to MVP. 
you might be a company that's very new and then also has a product that's, you know, there it's a different company and it's a new product. It's a hard challenge, but you know, our whole goal is just get you from one step to the other. Um, so, you know, if you don't be afraid, if, if you're new to this, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times they'll tell you don't outsource because you're going to lose your, your idea. You're going to lose, you're not going to be the expertise that gets the project and gets it mm -hmm. understood. Kind of our value add is we're very collaborative and we involve you through the process. And so I can show you, here's how we work through this problem. I'm doing it with you. The same as like, if you had external legal counsel or you had an external uh, accounting person, right? Your CPA, we're here to be your, your technology professional support, right? As you're going through your early support. Um, because the fact of the matter is like, if you're just hunting for a CTO or technical co-founder, you're going to have a hard time there. Yeah. I mean, especially like an example of sale, like people tell me, oh, Jason, you have all the tech people. Well, yes and no. Right. Yeah. I mean, even if people go coding camps, you want like $200,000 a year. Right. And if, and if they're, and they're probably not good enough what you need, right. Cause they're big beginners and they nope. are good enough. They probably have their own stuff they're working on or, you know, Amazon or Microsoft paying like $10 million a year with the, you know, crazy ass money. Right. So it's, it's hard, you know, as a non-tech founder, find the tech help you need. Yeah. And, and with your startup, you're doing HR, right? Yeah. Imagine trying to build out your whole HR department by yourself. It's, it's ludicrous, right? And, and it's not saying that, okay, you're going to lose all of your HR competence by having someone help you with HR. Same thing. We're here to kind of like help push you through tech. And, in, you know, our whole thing is like the, our most value that we can give you is if you're, you're here on technology and we're here, the moment we come into contact, you get, you get pulled up. Mm -hmm. And that's what I look for, for my clients. If I can help them get a, get a feel for what they're doing. And, um, I have, I have one guy where, you know, they basically, for our scope of work that we helped them out with, you know, it was in the low single digits for, for the cash that we charged them. Right. Mm -hmm. But he was being quoted 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. And all he needed was an MVP to like understand the market a little bit better so that he could continue to iterate. And, um, that's, you know, by working with us and he had a ton of hustle, and he was doing everything he needed to do outside of what we were doing mm -hmm. for him to make the whole thing push forward. And that's, I really wish I, you know, I had a hundred clients like that. Um, and that's, that's where we're at in the short term. In the long term, you know, we're going to use this expertise that we build. Um, this year we, we become, or 2022, we become eligible to start competing for R&D projects for DOD and DOT and, you know, federal government level. We really want to grow and expand in that dimension. Uh, we really want to start licensing original IP because really our revenue streams are gonna be twofold, right? You have um, projects and consulting work, and then we have original IP that we produce with our, our staff and our team that we have. Um, so I think this year, you know, kind of my goal is uh, first enterprise client and um, first original IP. So are your clients nationwide, or you just focus on the Seattle area right now? They're, pre they're pretty much nationwide. A lot of what we get is referrals. And, and I, how do you find these people? Like you have some kind of marketing plan, word of mouth, referral, how's that working for you? Yeah, we're, we're still experimenting with product market fit mm -hmm. for us. Um, so you, some of it's been organic marketing. A lot of it is word, word of mouth referrals. People know us, they know what we do. And because of that and the unique value that we offer, they send us over uh, people that need help. So how do you work through this? How do you know, what do you, what's your process for when a client is not a good match for you, right? I'm still, I'm still learning that. Uh, I have a couple of heuristics. Um, that I use to kind of like get through that sorting process. Um, and, and I'm getting better at doing that, uh, save everybody's time, you know? Um, but now, um, you know, absolutely. If, if I'm not a good match for you, I'm gonna try and hook you up with somebody that is, mm -hmm. you know, then that's my whole mindset is, you know, I'm here to help you. And uh, as much as I can, I'll point you in the right direction. If we're not the person that if we're not what you need, then we're going to help you find the person that you need. 
And talk about how you bring people onto your team, either as contracts, employees, or how does that process work? How do you make sure, you know, this person is a good match for your company culturally, and then like they actually have the skills that you need? Yeah, I, I really try and screen for uh, people that are growth oriented, right? Like you, you have to be wanting to grow because this this is not, you know, a small mom and pop shop. That's not what I intend for this to be. It's not a lifestyle stock company. We're going to grow. So you have to come with that growth mindset. You have to be intellectually curious, right? Like you have to be, um, you know, really wanting to learn a lot about a lot because we help people in different categories. We help people in different fields. So you have to be able to dive in and kind of learn where you're at in order to help that person move to the next step. And um, really looking for people that have um, some resiliency to them, right? Like, you know, they know that, um, hey, we're going to fail and we're going to fail often, especially in the early conceptual stages. Your whole thing is you might make three babies, right? That you think any one of these is a killer idea, right? And you you stayed up all night working on it. You present them to the client and the client's like, well, I, I, he like, you know, the client likes the least favorite, the one you made. And so you just have to live with the fact that those, those, those three possible futures that you made are just going to go into a, a file and they're just going to save them and they're just going to be part of the documentation. Right. Um, so learning and being willing to accept failure is a big part. And then the last one is, um, I really believe in esprit de corps, right? That's like a, a, b- a big um, Marine Corps value. And that, that has to do with like locking shields and making sure everyone has each other's back. Right. Like you have to, you have to be, I, I, I try and keep things more like a family and a friend environment. Right. Yeah. I think the curiosity part is a big thing. At least people are like, you have to be curious. You have to ask questions, you know, figure things out. Yeah. And, and so one thing about the, um, about the three baby thing you said. So when I was in the military, I, I, I did a, AG, HR in the military. One of the things I do, I would like, like a lot of like company commanders, battalion commanders, like interviews. Right. And like, we said like four people do an interview with the brigade commander. Right. Right. Three solid picks. One, we would call it a throwaway pick, right? You'd be surprised how often they pick the throwaway throw pick. pick. Yeah. You're like, what? He, like, he has no qualifications. He shouldn't even be having his rank. And they would pick him because, like, it's, it's, like, it's just craziness, right? Right. Um, but, you know, you, you just try and do the your best that you can to advise, you know, yep. and, that, and that's our position here. We're not here. Like, I'm not going to be the one who's committed day and night to your startup. Yeah. That's you. You know what I mean? I'm here to help you get through the technical hurdles and advise you of your options. And, um, that's, that's our role in this. So, and the same thing with, with my people, you know, I expect them to be service minded and, and really like intellectually curious and, and willing to fail. So you're going to be going out on these different intellectual limbs with the understanding that some are going to get paired back. And so it's, it's safe to assume your company is a remote company, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody that's, that's pretty much most people that are jamming with us are remote. So t- how do you do this? Right. Cause remote's a big thing now, but. Remote work is not for everyone, right? No. How do you make sure the person work for you is actually can do remote work? It's it's really challenging, uh, and this is something that I'm still learning and growing with. Um, there's people that I've brought in that I thought were going to be fantastic fits, and whenever we're in person, it's fantastic. But um, you know, it, it's complete. I'm starting to learn it's a completely different set of things that you look for mm-hmm. when you're doing remote work with somebody versus when you're working together in person. And and itself, it's a two way street. Both of us get it, right? Like my leadership style, they like a lot normally when we knew each other before but now whenever they're on the remote remote side of it they're like what you know this isn't really what i what i need and um so you know that's that's something to really experiment with and um i think a big thing you can do is always have a trial period right like if you're if you're a chef in a kitchen you'll have um like a, a trial or working interview that they do uh you should do that you know put be be a favorite everybody and make sure the expectations up front and like yeah. hey if i'm gonna hire you full time like 
one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hire anybody that I've done wouldn't haven't done work with. Yeah. And that's my new filter. It's like, Hey, I'll, I'll send you some contract you out some work. Yeah. You maybe, try that. Maybe do a 90 day contract or something like that, you know? Exactly. And then if that works out great. And if it doesn't, then let's all save each other some time and heartache and let's make sure you're set up going in a good direction. Um, but there's no point in, in jumping on to something. If you're, especially when you're young company, your, your key, your, your employees that you bring on, like that's, it's kind of like getting married. You know what I mean? Like that, that's an important thing. And, um, I wouldn't do it with, you know, lightly at all. So talk about this. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of people like entrepreneurs start, you know, the business, I mean, you, you know, rest in six months cause it's going to happen. But we don't talk about is how you bring a lot of employees, right? Start employees. You give them equity where the case may be. Yeah. But they usually leave, leave in the six months, right? Can you talk about the process, how hard it is to have a, a, a employees a startup? Yeah, it is really challenging. Um, and the reason is most people, when they go through their career and they go through their education, it's a very structured environment, right? And kind of um, if you're in a startup, right, and it doesn't matter where your startup is targeted, whether it's targeted for the mid-market or, or a billion dollar, you're going to be dealing with a lot of ambiguity. You're going to be putting people in a situation where there's a lot of unknowns, right? And so the more you can um, reduce that unknown window, the more valuable your company becomes in every dimension. If you know for a fact that, okay, I've got 100K in revenue coming in for the next six months, like each month I'm doing 100K, then now you're, you're come from, your company is infinitely more valuable, right? Because you have predictable revenue streams and um, the same is true with your job positions. If you use your core values to screen out, and then you, you're able to systematize what you're doing and what you're looking for, it becomes infinitely more valuable. Um, a, a big leadership challenge that I had was, you know, picking people that I knew were smart and were competent and then putting them into a situation of ambiguity mm-hmm. with knowing that they've handled ambiguity before and then seeing them fail and fail hard um, and not being able, being stressed out by it, being hard on them. Um, and if they have equity, it's, it's a lot easier but it doesn't change. And, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, that's, that's the number one thing you're getting hit on on a day-to-day basis is you don't know what the right answer is. If you're following a checklist, you're probably not in a startup. You know what I mean? And, um, so that, that you're going to, you're going to realize that every new hire that you're doing, every team member you're trying to come on, you're experimenting. You're, you're trying, you're as much defining your culture and, exper- mm-hmm. you know, finding your, your pathway forward as you are, um, you know, trying to find a hire to get stuff done. And if you think about it from that context, you'll find the right people. You'll find the people that meet your core values or what you're trying to expect and the direction you want your company to go and that fit in with the vision. Um, but, you know, people are going to be fishy. You know, they have their own lives. They have their own thing going on, especially if they're not being paid. Yeah. You know, I mean, they got mortgages to pay, student loans <laughs> to pay for. I mean, absolutely. And, um, you know, but the biggest advice that I got um, from our, our leadership professor at the University of Washington that really helped me out is if you're working people into new positions, you're doing the contract thing, whatever it is, just let them know up front. Okay. Hey, wh- what do you need to succeed? What do you need for yeah. my end? Yeah. And I'll give, I'll give you that to you as much as I can. Right. Like some, for some people, it's not money. For some people it's like, Hey, I really have this career objective that I'm trying to get to. And if you can help me get from, from A to B in some way that they'll, they'll, they'll be happy to come in and pitch in some time with you. Right. And then on your end, you have to communicate the expectation of don't leave me holding a bag. Don't, don't ghost me. Don't disappear. Just, if you need to bow out, just let me know. Yeah. It's, it's okay. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world. If you got, you got your own life, you're doing your own thing. Just let me know. Yeah. I think a big challenge is for start entrepreneurs, like, you know, you gotta find the best talent, right? Yeah. But sometimes you're like, man, I can't, the 90%, the A plus solution doesn't work for me. Yeah. Here's this D minus. 
the D minus ain't really good enough, but at least they can do something for me, right? And then it's like, you know, the chicken egg thing, you know. Another people that realize when you, when you raise funds, you usually raise funds, you need tech help and you got to pay solid, right? Yeah. People ain't cheap, right? Because you might say, I raised a million dollar seed round. I mean, if you have a couple developers, a marketing person, you know. That goes fast. That's gone. Yeah. And, and um, so it's really important to understand and, and write out explicitly, these are my assumptions for this company, right? And then whatever you're building should be challenging those assumptions. Like write out your, have your business plan or lean canvas or whatever you're working on and attack those things with what you're building, right? And who cares if you're making $10 a month? If you're, if you're really quickly figuring out your marketplace and really quickly nailing everything, then you're going to, you're going to grow. Um, but it's also important to realize that you're building a team, right? And I would rather, you know, and especially in the military, I'd rather have a squad of B people who are tight, were motivated and, you know, ha got it. They, everybody's mm -hmm. on the same page because you can cover for each other's weaknesses if you have a good team, you know, versus getting six, A players in a room. Everyone's got type A personality and nobody wants to put in and, and do anything. Yeah. Cool. I think, I think the best example and I back in like, um, back when Kobe and um, Shaquille O'Neal played together. Yeah. The one year they had Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Gary Payton, Carl Malone, and someone else like five superstars, but they didn't win anything, right? Right. And um, you and a lot of times, you know, if you can find a team, uh, and, and you know, for those of you that are hiring in your tech startups, a big thing I do is like with my undergraduate program, and then also um, through the University of Washington, is I look for student teams that are working on a project together. Mm -hmm. And um, some of them deliver very promising results. And so on the recruitment side for our university, what we're looking for is uh, certain teams and technical competitions that we're trying to recruit as a team and build, bring that in because it translates all the way through. By the time you get to your senior design project, they've been in school together for a ton of years and they all know each other. You go look at a senior design team at Kinsall State University, they're building stuff in, in six months that most techs, tech people yeah. can do in two years. So for example, you hit the open position. One person applied, he, he isn't working on projects. Another person applied, he has like hackathons he's been on with the same people. You probably hire the person who didn't know the hackathons, right? Kind of. I, you know, I'm going to look at their portfolio. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see what it is. Um, I'm really going to look and see if they're a team player, right? Because that's that's going to, it's going to make the world a difference. You know, are they invested in what you're doing? And a lot of times, um, and, and this is like the traditional startup mindset is I'd rather have somebody who has skin in the game and is looking to make a name for themselves. Doesn't necessarily have a whole ton of experience, but look at their project work while they're in school. And then you can see, oh yeah, this person's really hungry. You know what I mean? Like give them an opportunity. Uh, my mentor says all the time, he's like, you know, for the, the guys that went to the moon for the first time, did they have, I went to the moon on my resume? <laughs> No, you know, so look for the qualities that you expect, set up an environment of success and then try and give them every tool that you can to be successful. And as long as they're, they're doing their, their honest best, don't ever yell at somebody for doing their job. Yeah. They're going to fail. They're going to mess up, especially if you're doing a startup, they're going to mess up. You don't, if you knew what you're doing, it wouldn't be a startup. It'd just be a, 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 like, I'm making another pizza franchise. All right. That's not a startup, right? It's a startup when Oh, I'm doing this really interesting technical play, or I'm I'm going to Hello Picnic. I'm getting one of their uh, automated pizza robot machines, and that's what I'm building my my pizza franchise off of. That's when you're a startup, and you're going to make mistakes along the way. So, but as long as someone's honestly doing the job, you know they didn't show up drunk and they they crashed an airplane or whatever it is, make sure they know they can pull the handle at any point and say, "Hey, I see something wrong," or "I messed up." Because if you internalize that and you share, share that among your team, if, some, if they have the honest credibility to say, hey, I messed up, this is how I did it. This is how we can avoid it in the future. Make sure nobody else does this. 
then you're just going to get stronger as a team. Can you talk about the importance of developers, especially new developers having a portfolio? Yeah, that's, um, you wouldn't hire an artist who's just straight out of art school, 4.0 GPA and say, okay, yeah, you know, I'll give you $10,000 to paint this, right? If, if they don't show you your portfolio, most of the engineering managers I know, if the engineer has a 4.0 GPA, they'll throw them right off the stack. Yeah. I knew that was going to happen eventually. Here we go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if they have a 4.0 GPA, then that means they didn't fail, right? Which is a huge learning lesson. And they probably didn't do any project work or special teams or anything like that. Do not judge somebody based off their GPA if they're a technical person. Go take a look at their portfolio. What have they done in their spare time? What does the GitHub projects look like, right? Like what, what do they care about and what have they contributed to? Because when you're hiring a technical person, it's just like hiring an artist, right? You're looking for somebody who can take the theory and the, the things they've learned and reduce that to art. And that's literally the term we use in R&D, right? You take the theory and you reduce it to art. And, and that's what you're looking for is someone who understands all this complex stuff, but can take that and carve out a sculpture of what you're looking for. So, um, the, so how do, what's your advice on this? Like for, if you're a developer, you're a new developer or even a mid career developer, yeah. there's all these updates all the time, right? Like how do you keep up to date with all that stuff? Does it matter like, you know, being professional and doing your own time or. Oh, that's, that's a great question. And, uh, for those of you that are screening technical talent, um, if they're really passionate about what they do, like if you come talk to me about robot stuff, you're, you're going to get an earful, right? And I, I try and spare people <laughs> that 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 level of interest. Um, but if you're hiring somebody for a position and they're supposed to be a backend dev, then go look up some backend trends. Like literally just go to dice.com, like what's the top backend skills go and then just ask them, hey, what's your opinion about Ruby on Rails? You know, what's your opinion about this and that? And if they don't have an informed opinion about like their career field, like if you said, hey, I want to go be an automotive engineer and you don't have an opinion on Tesla or you don't know that Tesla exists, you're probably not the guy you want to hire. So Jason, like says Dice, I think there's Hacker News. There's all these like, you know, technical, you know, blogs and newsletters. Yeah. Any favorites? Um, I think the best thing you can do is set up a Google. Like if you go into whatever your new stream is, whether it's Apple or Google or whatever, you can filter out what, what do you want? You know, and um, for my personal news streams that I listen to on a regular basis, I, I filter for business news and like general news and just get you know the top off. So I listen to Bloomberg. I listen to a lot of business stuff. Um, but if you're trying to get more abreast of technology, you go in and you can adjust the filters and you can say, I'm interested in technical subjects mm -hmm. or I'm interested in this area of technology or this area of science. And it's really niche down. It's specific. So if you, you have you stuff like Google alert, yeah, not just Google alerts, but also like, um, I don't know if, if you go on your phone, you'll, they'll have the scrolling news section mm -hmm. where they just provide new articles. And I'm serious. If you just do that, you go on Reddit, find a Reddit community that's really interested in, in what you, you're interested in or your, your business area. Uh, one of the um, producers that I follow in LA, because uh, in my company, we do a lot of uh, creative media stuff. You know, we do hardware, software, creative media. And um, one of the how he started his whole production company and really started getting traction and made it where he didn't have to go work for you know companies anymore um was he looked at a reddit community about travel vlogs and like they're like nobody ever shares how much they do whenever they go you know traveling and stuff so when he went and did his travel vlog he just kept the receipts and he showed on screen as they're going through everything this is the price of what they did on their mexico trip right and then he put that in that community and then that gave him the traction 
to start moving forward with his production company because his YouTube presence was so high and he had such a high view count and he was making you know good media all the time. So it's a similar thing. Go and die, do a deep dive in your community community of interest. Reddit's a good, good, great place to start, especially if you're not a very technical person. If you are a college educated person and you don't mind reading papers, there's a technical society that is dedicated to whatever you're doing, especially if you're doing a tech startup. Go read the latest copy of the journal. You don't even need to read the thing. Just read read the abstracts, right? Of like, and then you'll very quickly, you'll be caught up to where's the cutting edge. You know, I have the Journal of Mechatronics that gets delivered to my door every every month. And just flipping through and reading the top five most interesting articles out of the 30 that are there, that puts me, you know, there's not a whole lot of people doing that. Does it matter what language the developer learns first? Does that really matter? No. Um, and actually our inter- our intermediate coding uh, school skill at, at our school, um, what we do for that course is we actually try and break you of that habit. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say, oh, I know Java. No, no, you. Well, for one thing, unless you, nobody knows Java, even the people who wrote Java, right, don't know Java. The same thing, C++, any, any of that. What you can say is I have a strong skill set in this, in this coding language particularly, and you know the nuances of that language, right? But if you really have a strong developer, what they can do is they can move between languages and then they just go look up the thing that they need. And um, especially for a full stack developer, what you're looking for somebody is giving a brand new language, right? I'm not a strong Python developer. My background's primarily C. But if I want to do something in Python, I'm going to have it done by the end of the morning, mm-hmm. right? Because I know how to look up a developer reference, read through the, the libraries or the APIs that I need, pick out the stuff. I, and it's just like reading a dictionary, right? Like you just, you find the stuff that you need and you put it in. And that skill set is way more important than someone being strongly versed in any particular language um, because those things constantly change. So do developers, do, they, do y'all think differently? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a different view of the world. Uh, when you get systematized and um, a lot of it's personality driven, like there's a reason why somebody becomes a developer. It's something that can be learned and is a mindset that can be adopted. Um, but, you know, you think about when you're a kid and you're playing with Legos versus you're playing G.I. Joe, you're playing with other stuff, right? That Legos mindset, that's how a developer thinks, right? I have a block of tools over here. I'm going to build this thing and it's going to be close to what I, you know, sure to you, it might not look like a castle, but they built a castle. Right. And you might argue of over, well, I wanted a red brick castle. Well, you didn't say that. You know, I just, I grabbed the bricks. I made a castle, right? That's how they think. And um, that's how I think all the time. You know, I look at a building. I don't just see the facade or whatever I see. Okay. Hey, it's probably got a chiller that's specced at, you know, this many tons. It's probably got, you know, I see this many windows. So it's this much thermal loading. It's, it's probably got a transformer that's this size. I literally see an exploded view in my head of the architecture. Right. And I do that with everything I look at. Because that's just how I, I think about things. I've torn so many things apart that I can see through the, I mean, it's like seeing through the walls. Can you tell us a lesson you've learned on your entrepreneur journey that you can pass on? Yeah. Um, I would say uh, the biggest one for me is when I was a kid, it was all about survival, right? Like I was just surviving and, and getting up. And, and until I joined the Marine Corps, I was all constantly a survival mindset. When I got into the Marine Corps, I shifted into a winning mindset. Everything was about winning. And when I first got into business, that's how I thought. It was like, okay, every job that we do, we're going to win it, right? We're going to win this proposal. And then we're going we're gonna to win when we deliver just such outstanding value that our clients love us, we're going to win, right? And now what I've transitioned as I've matured is into a value-based mindset, yeah. right? And for the first year I was in business, like above my bed, I had taped on the ceiling, like win on the ceiling because that's what I wanted, you know, think every morning like a champion, think like a winner. 
And it's not about winning. A lot of times, like, and you know this, if you're married or in a long-term relationship, a lot of times you, you can be right or you can be happy, but you got to pick, right? Yeah. It's definitely matter of or. Right. And, but it's a high value having that person in your life. And that's how you should be thinking about your clients and the people that you're doing business with is what is the value that you bring to the table? What is the value they bring into your life? And focus on value. And if you do that, your whole life will change. Yeah, I know a lot of people, they'll talk about, you know, like uh, in sales, like always be closing. We talked about some earlier, but I think there's other thing it's called ABR, always be recruiting, right? Yeah. Because you got to have some, like I tell people like, you know, you might have this great performer. You have some kind of bench, right? Where they might leave. You got to, you know, so to me, that's come from networking, meeting people, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Having a deep bench um, because, you know, if you got one developer who's holding you over a table, you know what I mean? Holding you over a bucket of water. Well, hey, I've got six more guys here that, that would love the opportunity of coming working with us. Yep. So that, that changes the dynamic. Now you're in, you know, uh, what they call about negotiation, they call about the bat nut, your best alternative, mm. right? Like knowing that and keeping that in mind and having a strong one all the time, having a strong alternative, it just makes you a better entrepreneur. Talk some about, about storytelling as an entrepreneur. Like, I mean, you got to tell people your story all the time, like over and over again. Like yeah. every time you meet someone, you got to tell them, right? Uh, absolutely. And this is something I really struggled with as, as a, as a technical and operations driven person is I'm just like, well, this is what we did. This is how we did it. Now how do you, how do you not understand this? Like, yeah. How do you not understand it, this? Is like, it one, two, three, ABC? What are you it, getting? It's, it's a mug. Yeah. What do you want? Like it has this many leaders capacity. Like this is what we're doing. No. So, um, it, like, remember I said, those challenges when you're working on a project, it's first politics and buy-in mm -hmm. and then it's money and then it's the tech. Right. And that politics and buy-in comes from everybody's the hero in their own story. And so whatever you're working in, and, and, and every marketing person will tell this, the customer has to be the hero mm -hmm. of, of whatever you're doing. And um, honestly, and like you said, the ABC of, of sales, right? Always be closing. Uh, something that really you know, resonated with me recently is someone said, stop selling and start saying, how can I be of service? Yeah. yeah. And, and lead with a service mindset. Like so, too many people that try to sell the features. Exactly. Like, no, how is this going to solve the problem? So I highly recommend, um, there's a marketing book called story brand. Um, and, and learn, you know, reading that and that'll talk to you about how do you craft a story for your, how do you make the customer, the hero of, of what your business is and, and making sure that you're staying on keeping them the hero and helping them. And then there's also, um, the, um, the great courses as a, a long lecture series, um, by, uh, someone from my alma mater, Kennesaw state. Um, and she just did a, a fantastic job working through, you know, it's hours and hours of content, but going everything from how do you talk to how do you build a story? How do you build a story that's authentic? You know, if you're an entrepreneur, this is something that you need to learn, right? Because nobody cares about how much you know, they care about how much you care, right? And, and then like they can, you know, they want to know what can you do for them. And if you can't communicate that in a way that's engaging, and you know, this is, I'm really passionate about this because it's something I really struggle with. Like as a, as a technical person who's, who's very like, you know, cashed in and like, you know, almost unhealthily focused on the things I'm interested in, being able to take a step back and learn how to talk to human beings um, is something that really comes out of storytelling, I think. Talk about this. So back to Mark, you know, those touch points, right? And, and I remember reading somewhere, like it, it takes seven, eight touch points even to get a customer, even reply, right? Yeah. I think I remember, I want to say it was HubSpot. They did a thing where like they had a free offering and it took 20 touch points just to get people to do the free, free offer, right? Yeah. So how do you go with like, how do you deal with like hearing the no or all the sonnets all those times? Um, I, I think a, a big part of it is like realizing that the network, like if you, if you view human relationships as networks, right? Um, then every person becomes a node. And then, um, 
in in uh, graph theory, they'll, they'll look called like the edges between the nodes, right? And so everyone's super interconnected, and and the noise that you hear every day and, and that's overwhelming is just a function of how interconnected we are. And uh, they'll tell you uh, psychologically, you have to see something, you know, six or seven times before you're even familiar with it, right? And then people buy based off of familiarity. And so, um, you know, the way I like to think about it is, let's say you invented the cure for cancer, right? And you kept that in a drawer somewhere and you put up one sign in your backyard that says, hey, I have the cure for cancer. It's going nowhere. It's not helping anyone, right? And so, uh, and this was something I really struggled with as an operations person is like a lot of the business value is in sales and marketing, right? Because that's communicating to the people who need it and getting it in their head. Hey, I have this thing that can really help you. I want to help you. Right. And so look, analyzing that network of people that you're connected to, analyzing your customer and saying, Hey, my, my ideal customer, this profile that they have, they're in this type of network, right? They're on the PTA board or they're at, you know, members of a golf club or, you know, they're getting their news from this source. And like, that's that I know that's where they're at. That is how you find your market. And, th and that's how you, you get this thing in front of them and you say, Hey, I have this thing that can really help you. So you deal with a lot of entrepreneurs, startup companies. When would you advise someone to stop? Like, you know, they always you know, talk about grind it out, go, go forever. Right. But what would you advise on somebody's red line be? Well, um, I think that's something that's going to be personally dependent. Um, uh, there's uh, Manish of Midnight Cookie. He's a successful entrepreneur. He came and talked to us um, and he talked about, hey, you know, in the state of Washington, as long as you have a couple hundred dollars a year, you can keep an LLC going indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Right. Nobody says you have to stop because you don't have revenue. Right. Like, so like, what does stop mean to you? When, when does it do? It's going to be different for everybody. Um, but I, I am working through the, um, the lean startup right now. And, uh, I think taking a scientific approach of, I have this value hypothesis, I have this growth hypothesis, right. And one or both of these need to be true as in part of my business in order for me to continue on. Right. And if not, then I need to pivot. And the faster you can get at doing that, and the faster you can iterate on your business, it, you know, for me, my goal used to be every week I would come in, you know, over the weekend, I'd think about it and Monday morning I'd come in and I'd have a new business because I'd, I'd think about my failures through the week and how do I bring that forward? Now I'm trying to be more systematic and explicit about it, especially working with the team. You need to say like, here's why we're going in this new direction. Um, so realizing that, you know, if you're committed to this, this bigger picture that you have, it's like looking at the top of a mountain and knowing I'm going to climb to that peak. And only a supremely arrogant person would say, I know the exact right way to get there. I know every step I'm going to take, especially if you haven't done it before. But even if you've done it before, things are going to change. Things are going to be different. So, you know, um, this, the red line, the stop thing, sometimes, you know, if you're out on a hard hike, you're going to, there's a safety call. You're going to yeah. say, Hey, I have to turn back in order so that I can come back another time and attack this. Right. Um, and be successful in the long term. If you just have a do or die mindset, guess what? You're going to die Yeah. because startup life is failure, and it, but it's learning to, it's learning from those failures and that's how you grow. So Jay, is there anything else that I asked you that didn't, or anything else you want to talk about? Um, I would, I would say, uh, we had a lot of good stuff today and this, this was good, good talk. Uh, if you, I would say, um, one thing we didn't talk about is, um, if you are looking, um, for technical help in your community and I like, for whatever reason you just hate me, you hate the way I sound, you don't want to talk to me. 
um, you know, there's a lot of good people out there who really want to solve uh, problems on the technical side. So that's your follow up question. There's a lot of good people out there. Yeah. But however, common, there's a lot, a lot of bad people out there who are people. people off. I'm a non tech person. I have this idea. I think I have product market fit. I need MVP. How do you know the right person to go to? Like, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, is that God, you know, it's non tech person that God be good, right? Talk about Python, Ruby Rails, MVP, all this stuff, you know, like, and like, how do you figure it out, right? Without getting ripped off? Design the test. You know what I mean? And be really explicit with this is what I'm trying to test. If your test is, does a three wheeled bike work? Well, you know, I, well, I, might, I might need to build a three wheeled bike, right? But a lot of times you can do that with connects, mm-hmm. right? Like, or Legos. You can show that the basic thing works. And then if you walk into a room and you say, hey, I have this model, I have this sketch, this is, I know, this is my dream of what this is going to look like. And you hand that all to a technical person and say, can you make something like this? You're going to get a lot, a lot more, for, you're going to get a lot further along. Right. And just be realistic with your ex, with your expectations too, because you know, if someone's turning down a $120,000 a year job to work on your pet project, or if they're, you know, doing this in their spare time that you have to work with that mindset. But as long as you come in with that mindset and you find the right person for your need, if I'm building a three wheel bike, I know I need a welder. Right. Then now, now you're steps ahead of the competition. Jay, understand something, something for our listeners today. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if you mentioned this show, uh, this podcast that we've done, the Jason Cavanis experience, then uh, it's 10% off. I, I don't know on our, our customary rates and uh, I can save you guys some, uh, some, some chatter. And can you share your social media links so people can reach out to you? Sure. Uh, the best way to get us is on LinkedIn and it's Heliopath Labs. Um, so H E L I O P A T H Labs. Um, and then, uh, likewise, uh, if you're trying to hit me directly, the LinkedIn is the best way to do it. Um, just, you know, send an email, reach out and uh, we can have a conversation. I'm always, you know, even if we don't work together, if you don't want to be a client or whatever, I'm, I'm always willing to, you know, point you in the right direction. And for our listeners, we'll have the links to his, uh, gift and his, uh, social media on our show notes. You can find the show notes at www.kevinshrblog.com. Also, uh, don't forget about, uh, uh, checking out Kevin's HR for HR needs. And also, like we, like we said, um, Jay's in a VIR on December 8th from 6 to 8 p.m. here in Seattle. We're doing a VIR showcase for them. We're basically the VR company going to have like a little booth, have like do pitches, competition, stuff like that. So December 8th at the Hawk Tower. So be sure to check that out. So Jay's a great talk. Can you give us any last minute wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, look out there in the world and find what you need. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are putting fantastic stuff out there day and night and just know that you don't have to agree with everything they're saying, right? There's going to be some people that have great attitude and you like the spice that they bring to it. But, you know, the things they believe in might not necessarily be what you agree with. But I know that I can, for instance, Andy Frazella, I don't always agree with that man, but he, bam, you know, you, you hear it and it, it gets your heart going, right? So in the same thing, there's going to be really te- like really technical business advice that is going to be dry as, as crap and, but it's what you need. So you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're out there, or if you're a technical person and you're out there, be constantly seeking a way to improve yourself and, and finding that information and find the mentors who can put you on the next resource. And um, as long as you're doing that and we're all doing that together, I think the world, you know, be a little bit better. Jay, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day.